Good morning. One of the things we're doing with learning is, um, some, if you followed the, the updates, we're hosting some groups after church on Sunday and some on Wednesday evenings. Um, the Wednesday evening group started this past week. We still have some room in it. This coming Wednesday, as you heard from the not fake news, is our business meeting, so there's no group meeting this Wednesday. But the following Wednesday after that, we're, we're, we've watched this little short documentary called Godspeed. Uh, it's about a guy who went, he was a pastor uh, from America, you know those horrible American pastors. Uh, he went to, ended up serving at a small parish in Scotland and just the, the cultural conflict between the fast American ways of doing it and the slow village life where he was have taught him a lot of things. So he created this kind of reflection uh, called Godspeed. And it's not so much about the speed of your life, although that's involved in it. It's about knowing people and being known, how we live in such a way to share life with people. So um, we're going to show you the, the trailer. It's about 90 seconds for the documentary, which you can watch online. No, we're not. We're not going to show you the trailer. Okay, we're not going to show you the trailer. It was on the screen up there, I thought. But anyway, live Godspeed. Yeah, we, well, it's it, livegodspeed.org is the link, and you can go watch the show you can join in, um, and we're not going to show the trailer because uh, those guys upstairs, I wish you could have seen it, they got more exercise in that last 20 seconds than they've gotten in two days with all that movement, so we're going to, that was my fault, I thought I'd put it up there and I must not have. Um, also, uh, in the after service, in the kind of what we do call our adult Sunday school format, we're starting today the first spiritual formation retreat, which will run the next five weeks on identity. We do have some space left in that, so if you're here and want to stay, or if you're watching online, we have about 10 or 12 spots still open. If you want to come and try to get in today, that'd be great. Um, I, I really believe in what we're talking about here and the process we're going through. I, I, I can't overemphasize how important I think it is for our own spiritual walk, so I'm hoping that people will commit to that and walk through that. That starts today. Um, okay, I feel like instead of a video, I, I know Jake just prayed, but I'm going to pray too, so let's just bow our heads together and pray. God, we thank you for an opportunity to come together in worship. We thank you that you are a God who is present with us in a time when we feel socially isolated, when we feel distant, when uh, there's, there's fear involved in going out and, um, and questions about the future and if life will ever return to normal. We just pray that we can rest in the fact that you are present with us, that you can use even these very, very difficult situations to help us grow and, and draw closer to you and also to point people to you and, and to share the love and grace of your kingdom. Help us to do that. And as we read this story of David and Saul from the text today, I pray that you would, would speak to us personally about how we can um, overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in our series of foundation. We're looking at the kings, and today we're in 1 Samuel chapter 24. We have seen Saul struggle a couple weeks ago with the perceptions of others. He felt the Philistine army barreling down on him, and so he got nervous, and he acted a, a little faster than he should have instead of waiting and obeying God's command. Uh, we saw his jealousy over David last week, uh, which continues this week. Today we come to a scene. It's been several years since our text from last week. David is on the run. Saul is pursuing him whenever he can. Saul's got this problem with the Philistines and being a king, it's a big, big job. But when he gets a chance, he's trying to hunt David down and kill him because he's jealous of him. And we pick up the text in 1 Samuel chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 1 to 22, and then we'll talk about it. 1 Samuel 24. 
After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were, were far back in the cave. And the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe, and he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord, you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. And then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. What we see in this story really is a moment made for Hollywood. This, this of most of, of the scenes in the Old Testament is one of my favorites. And you'd think they'd just make a movie of it because it's such a dramatic moment. The Old Testament stories are full of drama and suspense. And, and sometimes we've heard stories. If you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard this story over and over and over. And sometimes we lose the dynamics of what's going on there. David's on the run. He's hiding in a cave with all his 600 men. He's hiding. And who walks in for a bathroom break and a nap but King Saul by himself, the one that's pursuing David. All of this happens in, in, it said in the desert of Engedi. Now, Anson and I were there just over a year ago, thanks to your guys' generosity. Engedi is located in the desert to the south of Jerusalem, that borders the, the Dead Sea, and it's a desert. This first picture, Rob, if you can put that up, it is dry and vast. It is, it, it, there's, there's not much vegetation. I remember we drove south from Jerusalem, we passed through Jericho, and 
And the thing you notice as you go is there's less green and more brown and less green and more brown. And then all there is is brown. It's this huge desert area. The next picture you can see that it borders in the background. You're like, oh, good, water somewhere. Well, it's the Dead Sea, which is nothing but salt. You definitely don't. That's not where you're going to go get a, a drink of water. And all throughout this desert, everywhere you look on the sides of the mountains, you see caves. Look at this next picture. You can see um, this next picture coming, Rob. Got the next one? Yes. See those little holes? All the way you see these caves in this desert area around En Gedi. And then right in the middle of this is this oasis. It's a waterfall. This is the next picture. Right in the middle. It's, it's a hundred kilometers square, this desert. And this is the only fresh water in the whole place. The spring of Engedi. Ange and I were here. There's a little video clip. You can't hear very well. So this is the nature reserve, and I think like somewhere in one of these caves is where it's all it's hiding out. What's that? How the kids look where we are. We're at Engedi, which is a spring. It's the only freshwater source in a hundred kilometer square mm -hmm. in the desert. So it was seen as miraculous by the people who lived in the desert. For David. Supposedly hit from Saul in one of the caves. And he found Saul sleeping and cut his robe. So also seemed to be like the inspiration for the 23rd Psalm because the next valley over, some people think it's the valley of the shadow of death. You, you can see that you got this desert all around and, and David and his men are hiding close to the spring here because this is the only fresh water. They're hiding in the cave and Saul's coming looking for him. So of course he's got to stock up on water. And when he gets there, maybe while they're filling their water, whatever they're doing, it says he's going to go and he's going to re relieve himself. I'll talk about that term in just a minute. But in this desolate place, you see this Hollywood moment and it's got what every Hollywood moment has. It's got a reversal of power. A reversal of power. It's the characteristic in every good story, a moment where the power balance in the story shifts. The underdog becomes the champion, right? Uh, the poor little orphan Annie gets adopted by the millionaire. And, and the, what's, what's the orphanage lady's name? Mrs. I forget her name. And the orphan, what's is it? Mrs. Hannigan. Mrs. Hannigan gets in trouble, right? There's that moment in every good story where the power shifts. And, and that's what's happening here. The future king, David, on the run, fearing for his life in a cave. Literally hundreds of caves in this area. And this is the one he and his men are hiding in. And it's the one that Saul picks to come into. It says to relieve himself. I think that's a, not a great translation because we all know what we think it says when it says to relieve himself. We all know what he's, he's taking a bathroom break. The Greek word is actually he covers himself. So very, odd, very possible he did go in for a bathroom break. But the, the larger picture is he went in to take a rest. Probably pulled his cloak over himself and had a sleep in the coolness of this cave. And David's men can't believe the good luck. He came in here. He's asleep. His guards are all outside. He's by himself. And, and it, they even think God's in this, right? Did you see verse 4? This is the day the Lord spoke of. David, when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. They're, they're using what they believe are the words of God to say, this is it. And David takes his sword or a knife, whatever he has, and he creeps towards Saul. But what follows is not, uh, you, you know, a Wizard of Oz, ding dong, the witch is dead moment. It's not this big celebration. 
David makes a decision that disappoints them. He, he has this moment when he can take care of the problem. And he makes a decision that disappoints. He only cuts off a corner of the robe. He says, Saul is the Lord's anointed. And even he feels guilty about cutting off a corner of his robe. He's, his conscience is stricken, it says. And then, just to make it even weirder, Saul wakes up and he leaves the cave. And David goes out front and yells to him. Now, I know you guys don't sit around thinking of military strategy, but this was the dumbest possible thing David could do. Because now, all his men are trapped in the cave. David's out front. Saul's here with all his army out there. And they're all, it, it, it's the ultimate position of vulnerability. And, but David explains, hey, Saul, look what happened. <laughs> and he says a couple of times, Saul, God needs to settle the issue between the Lord. Let, may he judge between you and me. May he make good this situation. And then there's this moment of tension Right? You don't really read it there. We didn't really pause where you figure out what's Saul going to do. Is he going to say, attack? Go get him. And he cries out, David, my son. And he weeps. And, and you see in verse 16 to 21 what he says. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I. You've treated me well. I've treated you badly. You've just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. There's this change of heart, but, but then it says in verse 22, did you catch that? David gave his oath to Saul, I'll protect your family. Then Saul returned home and David went with him. Doesn't say that, does it? David and his men went up to the stronghold because David knew this was repentance that doesn't last. He knew Saul well enough to know he can say all this stuff, but three days from now he wants to chop my head off again. And sure enough, he was right. Just one chapter later, well, one in a verse, in, in chapter 26, 2 of 1 Samuel, so Saul went down to the desert of Ziph. That sounds like a bad desert, the desert of Ziph, with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. So much for the repentance. Saul was out to get him, and it was even to the point, if you read a little further down in, that, in, in the next chapter, 1 Samuel 27, 1, David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. David's given up. It's never going to stop. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Now, now we see that. We see that verse, and we think, no, no, David, you're going to be king. Hang in there, because we see it differently. We have a different perspective. We can look back at it and see the bigger picture. And, and this idea of the perspective with which you look at something, and it's shaping how you understand it, is really important. Because I want you to think for a minute about how David could have seen this situation how he could have seen it. He had all the reasons to respond by killing Saul right there on the spot. But he takes a different course of action. But listen, how could David, how could he have seen it? Well, first of all, he'd been personally attacked, right? We read, you know, Saul had tried to kill him on several occasions. He'd thrown a spear against him, tried to kill him, tried to pin He had the army out chasing him. If you read all through chapters 19 to 23, we see David, even though he's done nothing wrong, He's on the run. David's been personally attacked. Sometimes we like to justify our behavior, our less than Christ-like behavior toward other people by saying, but look at what they did to me. You don't understand. 
I know I'm supposed to forgive, right? But at some point, you have to take a stand. Because they, they just keep personally attacking me. When I have to take a stand for that. I, 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 can, I just can't keep forgiving them for that. David could have seen it from that perspective. But I've been personally attacked. I should kill the guy. I'm constantly in danger. Who would have fault, faulted David for doing that right there? You've been on the run from him. You've got 600 men pinned in a cave away from their families, fearing for their life, and you can end it all right here. After all, he was God's anointed. David was, right? Remember what he said? Verse 6, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, Saul, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. He's the one that's been anointed as king. And in verse 10, Some urge me to kill you, he says to Saul. But I spared you, and I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. Do you get the irony here? Do you get the irony? Remember when Samuel went to look for a new king among Jesse's sons, right? And they went through all the sons and got to the end, and God said, no, 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 not, not that one, not that one. Is there anybody else? And Jesse's like, well, there's that little kid, David. He's the youngest. He's out in the shepherd. We didn't even call him back because we thought there's no chance you'd want him. And sure enough, David shows up, and what does it say? So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. See, David isn't hurting the Lord's anointed, but he's God's anointed too. He's the one that's been chosen to be the next king. In fact, he's living it out a little better than Saul is at the moment. And he could have justified himself. He could have said, I'm supposed to be king. But he didn't. And isn't that like us too? Far too often we justify our actions because we're doing the right thing and they're not. I don't have to make space for them. I don't have to love them. I don't have to be kind to them because look at what they do and look at me, what I do. I don't even have to make time for them. Sometimes we view ourselves as the Lord's anointed. Sometimes the Christian church gets so arrogant toward the world. Because we're the Lord's anointed. We're the special ones. David could have seen it that way. He was personally attacked. He was the Lord's anointed. What's even more powerful is that there was some biblical precedent for him taking action. And sometimes in our moments, when we look down on others, when we struggle within a difficult situation and we want to take revenge, we use biblical words to support what we want to do. Just this week, someone in Hope shared on Facebook a meme. They live in Hope. I know them. You probably know them. And I had to shake my head in agreement. He said, it's frustrating that there are so many Christians running around with mouths full of Scripture and hearts full of hate. I thought, man, that's so... if 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 you watch the news, if you watch the media, how many times do Christians have their mouths full of Scripture but their heart's full of hate. Just because we use the Bible to justify something doesn't mean that the Bible actually justifies it. We twist the Bible. And in this story, David had precedent. We've already talked about what his men said in verse 4. There was this, somehow maybe David had heard that God was going to give his enemies into his hand. And they're like, look, David, this is what God was talking about. And, And in another moment made for Hollywood, right, Do you remember what happened when God said through Samuel to Saul that the kingdom is going to be taken away? Saul, you've you've not obeyed. You're going to lose the kingdom. It's going to be ripped away from you. Back in 1 Samuel 15, 
Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught the hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Right? So Saul's standing there with a piece of Samuel's robe in his hand. And Samuel says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors to one better than you. Well, here's David standing on the side of the hillside with the corner of Saul's robe in his hand. You see the drama? You see the Hollywood? See how a director could play on that? Wouldn't that be a powerful image? And, and what we saw last week in chapter 18, right? It said, Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. See the Hebrew phrasing I told you last week talks about this is, this is a play on the fact that Jonathan is taking off his royal robes and giving them to David saying, you're going to be the king. There's this, this constant theme of the fact that Saul is not going to be the king and David is. And, and even if he didn't have his own story, he could go back in biblical history. In the time of the judges, in Judges chapter 3, there's a, there's a story. There's a king of Moab named Eglon. Eglon is a great name. Um, and he's, caught, he's wreaking havoc on the, is, is on the Jewish people. And there's a, there's a judge named Ehud, which is another good name. And Ehud was left-handed. And he goes in to kill the king. Well, he comes into the king of Moab's quarters and, and a right-handed guy, which most hand were, would keep his sword or his knife on his left leg. So you could pull it out like this and fight, right? Because this is just too hard. You want to do it like this. So when he went in, it says they searched his left leg and found no weapon. But they didn't realize he was left-handed. He had his knife on his right side. And he goes in into the place, if you read the story in Judges 3, the place where the king was resting, where his public toilet was on the roof, where he went to relieve himself. And he went in and he grabbed the knife out and he killed this evil king to take power back for the Jewish people. David could have said, oh, here it is. Here's another moment. A king's come in to rest and, and I'm supposed to be the one taking power away from him. But he doesn't. He doesn't kill him even though Saul had personally attacked him, even though David was the anointed, even though there was biblical reasons, scripture, God's voice, things that they, they knew, stories of their people, even though there were grounds for him to do it. He doesn't do it. And, and on top of all of that, David had the support of the people. We've seen that over and over. Saul had the throne, but David had their hearts, right? 1 Samuel 18, 16 and 30. But all Israel and Judah loved David. Because he'd led them in their campaigns. And the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers. And his name became well known. You know, we, we often have people saying to us, yeah, you're just, you know, you need to just do that. Deal with that situation. I can understand. We have the support of the people. See, all those things. <laughs> we use those to justify our actions. They're attacking me. But I'm, God doesn't want me to live like this. I'm, I'm, I'm his child. And, and, and there's biblical reasons. I can use Bible verses to justify what I do. And people support me in this action. Still doesn't mean that the rights we are holding on to are being held in the right way. I, I titled the sermon, The Right Way to Use Your Rights. One of the things that kills me is we hear so much about our rights. I have a right to this. I have a right to that. <laughs> As Christians, you have a right to lay down your life because you're called to follow Jesus. That's your right. 
David could have seen his rights from any of those perspectives. And, and initially, for the moment, it would have made his life a whole lot easier. But I want to close out looking at how David chose to see it. How did David choose to look at this situation? Little did he know at that time, but his actions would, would follow very well the, the reading that Gary did from Romans 12. Words that were written to believers in a culture under oppression by Rome. Romans 12, starting in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let me just say something before I finish reading it. This is not good advice. This is scripture. This is what we're called to live. This is not, okay, think about this as you're making your decision. This is the call for us to be obedient to. Do not take revenge, my friends. Do not. But leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Oh, there's an interesting military strategy. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink, and in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. David did that more than a thousand years before Paul even wrote it by the Spirit. This text and the story of Saul and David in the cave give us some guidelines. I'm going I'm to highlight four. I'm sure there's more. But in situations when we've been attacked, in situations where we're afraid, in situations where we've been hurt, how in the world are we supposed to respond? In situations where we feel justified that we should take retributive, we should, we should take action in retribution. I was trying to say retributive, but I can't say it. So we should take action in retribution. How should we do it? Well, the first thing I see is that David realizes that only one is truly qualified to judge. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him. That's verse 6. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between you and me. It's his job. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. David knew that there's only one who's qualified to actually judge the situation. He knew that despite all the realities he was aware of, that his understanding of the situation was very limited. And as much as he wanted justice, he had to admit that as an unjust person, we all are, his perspective was always tainted. That's why it says in Romans 12, 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. Now, this is very hard for North Americans to buy into because we think we're right, right? North America, and by that I mean America and the country to the north of America, we've been successful we're great, right? And, and we're right. We should, we should, we have the ability to mete out justice in the world and in our situation. We just have that confidence. And we want to take action. We want to punish the evildoer. We want to reward the righteous one. <laughs> if you notice it, people are talking politics lately. There's a couple of elections <laughs> happening now. And people are starting to talk a little bit about politics. And my favorite thing to hear somebody say is when they're disagreeing with someone else they say, and I, it comes out of my mouth too, I just can't believe they don't have a more balanced opinion. And what they mean by that is, I can't believe they don't think like I think. Right? That's what we mean when we say that. Because we're right and they're wrong. I can't believe they don't have my opinion, is what we're saying. And, and, and in those situations, 
we have to realize, you know, we don't get the full picture. We don't understand. There's only one who's actually qualified to judge what is best for our situation. And we have to leave that final judgment with him, like David does. May the Lord be our judge and decide between us, verse 15. Can we do that? Can we trust that God will make things right, even if it's not right now when we think it should be done? Can we let our grudges and our anger go? Because that's part of the problem, right? The situation that we're in makes us angry. It makes us scared. It makes us hurt. And it weighs us down. And if we could just do something to resolve it, we'd feel so much better. You ever have that hanging over your head? Somebody's been mean to you. And if you could just punch them, in, not punch them, in, but if you could just get, if you could just at least let them know how you feel, you'd feel better. But David, in his situation, remembers that relief doesn't equal right. Verse 7, David doesn't hurt Saul, and he doesn't let his men do it. He's got 600 men away from their families, on the run, hiding in a cave. And relief from that would have been sweet. In that move, David could have established his kingship, and those men could have gone home to their families and been highly regarded in the kingdom. You know, we have this assumption that when others make our life difficult, it has to be addressed. We've got to fix that. I can't stand it like this. I need relief from this. We, I, my life needs to settle again. It needs to be smooth again because it's bumpy right now and I'm not enjoying it. So obviously something is wrong and I need to fix it. Romans 4.12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. See, often it's the lack of relief, the difficulty that God actually uses to shape us. We think it needs to be solved right now. Fix it now, because this is not good. I'm a child of God. And, and he's, I want that peace that passes understanding. Sometimes the lack of relief is what God uses to shape us. He even did that with Jesus. Hebrews 5 says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Even Jesus had to suffer. Even Jesus learned obedience through suffering. If Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering, do you think maybe we could do that too? Maybe that's something we need. But, but Jeff, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not. Please don't hear me minimize your suffering. I'm not saying it's easy, but, and I'm not saying it's fun, and I'm not saying sign up for suffering. God, come on, kick me right now. I, I need it. I want to be like you. Kick me. Make my life as horrible as you can make it. Because I'm not saying that. I'm saying when suffering comes, sometimes to receive it as a way God wants to shape us is what we need to do. A bumpy road in your life is not a sign that something's wrong. It may be a sign that God is using your circumstances to shape you. And, and the way we make it through that is to realize that the anointed can trust the anointer. David is chosen, but he waits for years and years to become king. And they're difficult years. He trusted God to bring about his ascension to the throne. He did not have to make it happen. He waited and knew God would do it. 
And, and in that, a thousand years before Jesus, he was following Jesus' example, right? Jesus in the garden, praying. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. But Jeff, you don't know how difficult my situation is. You don't know how much pain this is causing me. I don't. But I do know who has you. I know who's holding you. And I know that you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit as a believer. And that the anointed can trust the anointer to bring about what he's doing. In Jude 24 and 25, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. You know, this is so easy to talk about and so hard to do. One of the easiest things for me to do is to preach a sermon about faithful obedience through suffering. And one of the hardest things to do is to be faithfully obedient through suffering. I get that. I, I, I'm not saying this is easy and I'm not saying I've, I do this all the time. I'm saying it's easy to talk about, but we have to talk about it because it's what scripture calls us to. But the reality is in that moment, faithful obedience through suffering may be exactly what God is using to bring about his resolution. Well, so what do I do, Jeff? Just sit here and suffer? Feels very passive, <laughs> right? What do I do? Well, thank you, Paul, for writing Romans 12, 20 and 21. We can overcome evil with good. You know, we often think we overcome evil with, with power. David could overcome evil by killing Saul and becoming king, and everything would be just fine. Or we think we, we overcome it in a political scenario by our vote and by getting the right person in office. There is no right person that's going to overcome evil because that's above any kind of military or political leader's pay grade. Martin Luther King Jr. got that when he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. There's something deeper that has to happen for evil to be vanquished. You should read the next chapter because there's a, I'll tell you the story really quick. There's a guy named Nabal and his wife Abigail. And they, he's a rich man. He owns flocks and herds and he's got all kinds of stuff. And David's men have been camping next to Nabal, and they've kind of protected him. They've helped him out, you know, been good to him, didn't steal from him. And then when David's men need something, David says, go over to Nabal and just ask if he'll help us out. And Nabal says, absolutely not. How do I even know who this David is? Right? He kind of, because it says he was an evil man. He was, con he was hoarding his stuff. He wasn't being hospitable. So the men come back to David, and David says, okay, strap on your swords. We're going. Every man in his household dies before tonight. This is David. Who, do, you get that, do you get the irony of David's life? No, I can't touch the Lord's anointing, but I'm going to wipe this family out, right? Just got to get that. That's who he was. Well, Abigail, Nabal's wife, is a very smart woman, and she hears what's happened, and she gets bread and everything, and she goes and she meets David and his men coming, and she bows down to the ground. She says, he's an evil man. Please forgive him. Do not do this. She, she takes good to overcome the evil that her husband has done, and it even overcomes the evil that David's going to do. He says, oh, thank you for stopping me. Let's read the story. She overcame evil with good. And that, that's what we're called to do. Romans says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
Feed him. Feed your enemy. Give him some food. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. What? Yes. In doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. You know, when we read that verse, we like the burning coals part. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get you to this food. I think that's missing the point, right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we can do. Instead of getting even, instead of removing your situation, instead of, of ending the evil the way you think it needs to be ended, overcome evil with good. Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that's our supreme example. And if you realize that moment, right? Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They're nailing them to the cross. And then it says, he gave up he, with a loud breath. He said, it's finished. And he gave up the ghost. He died. And then the guy who'd been leading the crucifixion, the Roman centurion, said, surely that man was the son of God. Do you get the irony there? Instead of Jesus zapping the Roman centurion from the cross and saying, how dare you mess with me? You're going to see I'm the son of God. Jesus forgave him. Father, forgive them. He died. And in that act, the Roman centurion's heart was changed. Oh, man, that guy was the son of God. Everything that he thought about power was turned on its head by this countercultural act of overcoming evil with good. That's our example. May God empower us to live with grace and humility, trust, and, and the obedience of Jesus every day in our lives and allow the outcomes to be determined by the one who is worthy and just. Let's pray. God, we all have situations. Maybe we're not pinned in a cave. But there are those people we can visualize in our mind that hurt us, that take advantage of us. And we want it resolved now. We want it fixed. We want to take action. And maybe they are wrong. But help us today to overcome evil with good. Help us to, to let this suffering and difficulty expose what is in us even as David was exposed in the very next chapter for his anger. Teach us. Shape us. Help us to, to entrust ourselves to you and be faithfully obedient and seek to overcome evil with good. In your name we pray. Amen. I really think it's important that you let David be human. I think that's why the next chapter comes, right? He looks very human in chapter 25. He looks superhuman in chapter 24. But, and I don't know what's in David's head, but I know what would have been in my head. Like he, he took a sword and he walked toward the sleeping king. I think he was thinking, I'm going to do this thing. And when he got there, something in his head said, just cut off the robe. You can't do this. It was the spirit of God. It said the spirit came on him when he was anointed. He, he walked in the power of the spirit from that time on. And, and I can't help but think that there's this struggle in David's head saying, what the heck am I doing? <laughs> what, am, what, what am I doing? And, and I think as you go through life, you're going to be thinking, overcome evil with good? I'm supposed to do good to this person? What? What am I doing? And that's why I, I'd leave you with this. And I've done the research. I don't know the exact number, but the most common, you know this, the most common imperative in the scripture, the one that's used more than any other times, you remember what it is? Do not be afraid. <laughs> That's why we don't do good. 
Because we're afraid if we don't take care of evil, that evil's going to get us. Scripture says, do not be afraid because the anointed can trust the anointer. He will finish what he's done. And he's calling you to overcome evil with good. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.